I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Tony Scaloni, who is a very influential figure in Cumdeithe City Aith, the Welsh Language Society, has been for many years. But you've got quite an interesting family background, Tony, haven't you? I believe your father was an Italian prisoner of war. He was. He was captured in North Africa in the early years uh, of the war and transported from North Africa to South Africa as a prisoner. Then from South Africa he went on to Liverpool and then located in the prison of war camp in Hensham in West Wales. So what part of Italy was he from? He came from the south of Italy. Uh, and anybody who knows Italy well knows that the, the people of the north took down the people in the south and did so then and do so to this day. So when he was released, when was he released then? He was released at the end of the war, and um, while he was a a prisoner of war, uh, they were offered the opportunity to go and work on the farms or other local places of work, and he took that opportunity. And it was while he was on one of those farms that he met my mother. Was it a big thing for him to leave his native country behind and move to a completely new place? It was. I mean... The village that he came from was in the central part of the south of Italy. It was a very poor area. He came from um, from a poor background. I mean, everybody in the area was poor uh, at that time. I had no idea, really. The war was something which was very controversial in Italy itself. There was a, a schism. A lot of the people totally opposed to, to the war. And one of his brothers was... Uh, captured and in a prison in Germany the same time as my father's a a prisoner in Wales. Like many, many people, they're dragged into war, aren't they? And uh, uh, he ended up in West Wales, and obviously the standard of living in West Wales is considerably higher than the standard of living in his home area, but I think more particularly he'd found uh, his soulmate, uh, and that was the reason why, after he returned to Italy, briefly, he came back to Wales and... uh, eventually married my mother. What did he do for a living? He started off, obviously he was penniless at the end of the war. His background was, was one of having to work hard anyway from very early age. So he set off working on farms and then he worked in a garage, trained himself to become a mechanic. He, he worked in a laundry and um, then he and my mother, when they got married, they opened up a little shop. So she'd be in charge of, of the shop and he'd be going around the local area in a van to the farms and the small villages with clothes to sell. My mother also gave music lessons to uh, make ends meet, and that's how they made their living. Eventually they uh, moved to a bigger and a better shop in another part of the town. So your mother was a Welsh speaker, was she? My mother was a first language Welsh speaker. My father was a first language Italian speaker, Neither of them could speak Welsh or Italian, so the language in the home was more than 50-50 English, probably 60 or 70% English and 30% uh, Welsh. I talked to my mother in Welsh, I talked to my father in English with a bit of Italian, but then the conversation frequently around the table would be in English. Did your dad ever learn Welsh? He learnt Welsh at the level to enable him to greet people and, and to understand conversations and to say things at a fairly general level in Welsh, but I would never say he was a fluent Welsh speaker, no. 
So, so far as you were concerned then, you did your education in West Wales. Which uh, town were you in? Newcastle Emlyn. Newcastle Emlyn in Carmarthenshire. That's a very Welsh-speaking area. It was, but the education wasn't Welsh-speaking in that, in that year of the time. I mean, my memory of, of uh, primary school education was, was primarily in English, but there was some Welsh. My memory of the second education was is far stronger, and it was 85% English, although the majority, the vast majority of the children were Welsh speakers and spoke Welsh in the playground. In the classroom, the language was in English. The exception was Welsh language itself, and the very first year I was in um, uh, uh, the secondary school, there were some lessons in, in geography, history, and, and RE that, that were in Welsh, but from there on it was in English. At the time, when the great majority, if not all of your contemporaries, were Welsh speakers, were you conscious of the fact that it was a bit odd that most of the lessons were in English? I, I was conscious of, that something wasn't quite right, but not fully conscious. Because I had a, a mixed heritage background, I was more aware of identity. I was more aware of, of, of differences and similarities between people. My first experience of Italy was when I was 11 years of age. And when we went with my father to my father's village, we went to a very poor village at the beginning of the 60s. So I became very conscious of poverty. And I understood that, that, that standards of living were different. And I think that was part and parcel of my growing awareness and political identity. I, I, I became very strongly in favour of Oxfam, and I used to support Oxfam, and I used to... Uh, I was very aware of the radical movements in the 60s to do with CND and the Vietnam War. And somehow or other, the beginnings of the Welsh language movement was part and parcel of, of that growing political awareness. And I joined Plaid Cymru when I was in school. But I wasn't fully aware of, of that. And I didn't question uh, my um, English language education because that was the norm. That was that was what there was no other option. Everybody had the same education. I'd have very well-meaning teachers. I can remember one in particular who I got on particularly well with, who when I passed my A levels to university, put his arm, you know, around me and said, "Well done, you. You've done very well. I'm very pleased for you. Now you get rid of that accent if you want to get on in the world." Really? Yes. Yes. But you didn't take his advice. I didn't take his advice because I went to university. I was I studied geography, and I felt. Although I should have, in some ways, have gone to Aberystwyth University, I thought to myself, I'm a geographer, I should go to a different area, and I actually went to Southampton University. And uh, I came, of course, across a totally different type of English to, to the sort of very heavily accented English that I spoke. And initially, I think, some people found it very difficult to understand me. Uh, but I was aware, more aware of my Welsh background and my identity and there were one or two other people in university from South Wales who spoke Welsh, and we'd occasionally speak Welsh to one another, but my uh, higher education was primarily, well, obviously, entirely in English. And then you became a teacher yourself. I went to um, a teacher training college in, in Reading uh, University, and then I went to London for three years. I worked for two years as um, a secondary school teacher in East Acton, which was a fantastic experience. It was a very mixed-race school, I suddenly found myself having great empathy 
with, with people from African Caribbean backgrounds and, and Asian backgrounds because they, like me, had a different heritage to the, the majority of the children were English working class in the school, but the substantial minorities of, of um, Afro-Caribbean and Asian groups. And I, I seem to be on very well with them. I understood and they understood me somehow. And uh, I think that that experience enhanced my appreciation and understanding of diversity and, and of the importance of my own language. And uh, at what stage did you return to Wales? After two years in uh, education, I took a year out to work in a record shop and did voluntary social work. In fact, I went on Supran two nights a week for a couple of years. That was for the homeless, wasn't it? At the time, the homelessness seemed to be confined primarily to the capital city of England and and Scotland. I didn't know of homelessness in Cardiff at that time. It's quite shocking that the situation is so bad now. Uh, And then I knew all along that I was going to return to Wales because... Before I'd gone to um, work in London, uh, my, I'd started a relationship with my current wife and she was going to college in uh, uh, London, so we knew at the end of that period then we'd return to Wales. And you came and taught in a school in Wales? I came and taught in, in a school in North Wales, an anglicised part of North Wales, in Rill. I taught in Rill for four years uh, and that's when I formally joined the Welsh language Society. I was always a supporter, and I did, but I acted in an individual capacity. Um, I wasn't really, I was on the fringes of the uh, language movement. But then in 1996, I, I joined, as soon as I came back, I joined formally, and once again, I was on the fringe for three, four years. And then, beginning of the 80s, I became uh, very actively involved at a local, regional, and laterally at a national level. So what was it about the situation facing the Welsh language that drew you to join Cymdeithas Iaith at the time that you did? There were two things, I think. One, my experience in London, and to a lesser extent in, in, um, in Southampton, enhanced my understanding of the importance of diversity and celebration, really. I, I loved reggae music the um, Afro-Caribbean community in London developed their own language, their own English language, heavily accented, to um, celebrate their personalities. That was one thing. The other thing, is, is, I think, is partly linked to my understanding, partly through the subject I, I, I studied, geography, of inequality, the injustice of inequality and, and, and poverty, uh, and um, the fact that... that societies were being denied their basic human rights. At the time, in the early 70s, uh, civil rights were, were a very important part of, of people's discourse. I mean, I, don't, I just mean the civil rights movement in, in, in America. I mean civil rights generally, which was an important part of the discourse. So it was in, in that very broad context, and I questioned whether or not I was being supportive enough, or, or enough of my own community my own identity. I became more interested in my Italian background and I became far more interested in my Welsh background. And I suddenly realised that I'd been denied the opportunity to uh, be given a a Welsh medium education. And my understanding uh, and knowledge of of the history and geography of Wales was far less than it should have been. 
because it wasn't a core part of the curriculum of those subjects in the 60s and 70s. So it, it was an intellectual rationalization, in a sense. My, my um, underst- feeling that it was important to be actively engaged in fighting against inequality, be it you know, homelessness, be it you know, child poverty, be it uh, inequality in the world stage. You know, from the early 60s, mid-60s rather, I, I've always supported, you know, through small donations, possibly I've always been uh, a supporter of, of Oxfam or UNICEF, and I've continued to this day to contribute a certain amount of, of my, you know, my, my sort of money to, to, to organisations like that. So I saw them as being in parallel, in a sense, and the thing for me was, well, what do I do in my own position? What do I do where I live and work now? I, I was determined not to work in anything except a state school. So my first political stand as an individual, apart from small-scale activism with the language Society, was refusing to go to teacher training into a public school when I was offered what was a piece of cake for, for potential teachers in, in Reading. I, I just said, sorry, I'm not going to go to the Blue Coat School in Reading. I'm going to work in a state school. I have no interest in working anywhere except in state school. And to me, that was my um, probably a very important point uh, uh, for me because I was making a statement to myself that you know, inequality and, and injustice were important and I wanted to be part of creating a more equal society. And to me, that meant as well accepting, acknowledging and celebrating people's differences, be it you know, religious, racial, linguistic or whatever. Sometimes the... Welsh language movement has been characterised in perhaps quite a narrow sense of looking at things like uh, the need for bilingual road signs and uh, obviously in the um, early days there was a lot of activity in terms of um, uh, painting over or knocking down road signs that were only in English and other things like the opportunity for people to use Welsh in courts but the way that you've described the way that you were drawn to the Welsh language movement, Tony, is in a sense almost a more, well, it's not exactly theoretical because it was, it was going to the heart of your identity, but it was focused more on identity than it was in those specific manifestations, if you like, of inequality. Yes. I had the opportunity to, if, if you want, by, by having part of my education outside Wales and part of my first work experience outside Wales, I was able to rationalise who I was and what was important to me. And what I could see when I returned to Wales was this basic inequality. The signs were in English. Services weren't available through the medium of Welsh. Uh, People had to ask and and were refused, you know, uh, frequently, you know, basic services through the medium of Welsh. That just seemed wrong. If I'd been uh, um, of Afro-Caribbean background, I'm sure I would have been very active involved in, in rock against racism. But that, that understanding came, was greatly enhanced by my experiences in London. Um, and I felt that, that the, the, the lack of understanding and appreciation of a language, which was the oldest living language in Europe, 
uh, a language which has touched all parts of Britain. The fact that people living in Stratford-upon-Avon don't realise that Stratford-upon-Avon actually is Astrad Araravon, that Malvern is Moilvrin, that people don't understand and are not aware of the Welsh language heritage in parts of England as well as in Wales. But the, the basic denial of human rights, and I saw it in that context, for Welsh speakers seemed to me the obvious place for me to put my energy and, and to uh, support uh, actively. It was probably more pronounced in those early years when you were involved, but there are still examples today where there are individuals who have got a real down on the Welsh language, aren't there? Even people in Wales. Where do you think that stems from? That's a, I th- there are. I think it's partly because of their education. I, thought, I, I might be wrong here, but I think it's partly because there is a sense of loss. It is a, they may not speak it, but it is a part of their heritage. You know, place names, surnames, you know, uh, their histo- the history of, of their country, the history of their locality is linked to the Welsh language to a greater or to a lesser degree. And I've always felt, and that's why I feel, I've always uh, felt, and feel to come to I've always felt that Welsh language is the language of all people in Wales. They may not speak it, but it is a part of their heritage. There's nothing that pleases more when people come up to me and say, oh, you know, um, I don't speak Welsh, but I support it. But there are, there are still, still a minority uh, of people. I think it is a, 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 a smaller minority, much smaller now, who feel that the language is a threat to them and don't see it as part of their own heritage and their identity. I want all people in Wales to be given the opportunity to speak Welsh. That's why our current campaign to get rid of the notion of a second language and second-class citizens. The Welsh speakers were second-class citizens. I don't think the speakers be considered second-class citizens. I want all people in Wales to be given the opportunity to learn Welsh and to be a part of the growth of the, and, and celebration of their identity as Welsh people in you know, a multicultural and multiracial society. You still from time to time have these situations where there are people in particular communities who um, are unhappy about the fact that school, local school, is being turned into a Welsh medium school. I mean, a couple of years ago, there was a particular flare-up, wasn't there, in Llangenech near Llanetli, about this. Whenever something like that happens, there's always a sort of upsurge of coverage in the media, the BBC Mm. takes a lot of interest, you get people from the network coming in and having debates about it. Do you find it a bit wearisome that even today, when there have been a lot of strides forward for the Mm. Welsh language, it sometimes seems that people like you are put in the position of having to defend the existence of the language? I find it very, very wearisome. The same time as the struggles going on with Llangenech, there were schools in Cardiganshire, not so far away, there were, there were once bilingual schools becoming Welsh medium schools, and there's no, no reference to them at all. For example, in the Cardigan, catchment area of Cardigan High School, uh, two or three of the primary schools in that area became Welsh medium schools with no fuss at all, with the parents agreeing with that. The only difference between a Welsh medium school and an English medium school, for me, is that children from Welsh medium school leave school fully bilingual. 
children who go to uh, an English medium school leave school fluent in English but not in Welsh. And one of the answers to raising standards of education across Wales is embracing both languages because international evidence has shown that people who are able to speak uh, more than one language improve their thinking skills, improve their creative skills, think laterally, and actually it even holds dementia back uh, a certain amount. And people aren't aware of this, and they they aren't aware of the fact that being fluent in more than one language will actually benefit them. So it is uh, disappointing, particularly disappointing where some people may take advantage of that for political reasons. Yes, it's, it's tiring. I wish... I wish we'd got over that, but I, I have to say that the vast majority of people by now have a better understanding. But it is easy to slip into you know, the binary sort of black-white situation. It's not like that at all. And there's another <coughs> uh, school of thought which would say, oh yes, well, you know, we're sympathetic to the Welsh language, but all these battles have now been won. Why are you still campaigning? That's a good one. I'll give you one simple example. Uh, apprenticeships in Wales this year there will be 111.5 million pounds spent on apprenticeships in Wales. Last year, less than 500,000 pounds of that 100 million point 111.5 million pounds was spent on Welsh medium apprenticeships. And this is a scheme to promote to give people the opportunity to develop the skills in the workplace, in their own community. Now, that's a grave injustice. Over the last five years, some £500 million have gone in to support apprentices in workplaces right across Wales, but less than half a million pounds of that has gone towards apprenticeships that are in Welsh. So that's an example of an injustice. I think it's an injustice that children, through accident of birth, are born in an area where they don't have a Welsh medium school or the opportunity to have Welsh medium education on their own doorstep, that they have to travel for that uh, education. I'd much prefer every single school to embrace Welsh language and say, well, OK, we might not all, as teachers, be able to speak Welsh, but we want our children to leave school able to speak Welsh. What can we do about that? So uh, the injustices are not as um, obvious as you know, all the signs in English, whereas they should be bilingual. But they're still there. Things like you see some people come in and they change the names of places, well, lovely Welsh name, to an English name, and that's losing heritage, you know. I get annoyed when people uh, refer to Llanai Mumbir, like in Capel Kirig, as Twin Lakes. They're not the Twin Lakes, they're Llanai Mumbir. Those are little things, little examples. The bigger examples are the ones that I've just referred to. They're still there. Sometimes these people in the tourism industry would say, oh, well, we're trying to attract people from England and further afield, and they would find it too difficult to pronounce these Welsh names. That's why we give them English names. Yeah, I don't know about you. From my experience, when I go on holiday, I want to see and I enjoy the differences. I want to be in a different place. Uh, a lot of the tourists who come here from Europe in particular, they actually want to see. And, and from the Far East, they actually want to see. They actually go looking for things that are Welsh. And that's why, by the way, a lot of very uh, profitable businesses have been set up and, and they celebrate the Welsh language. I'll give you a very good example. The best joggers in Wales come from the area I used to live in, Llaithrlan, by um, uh, Denby in North Wales. Their yoghurt cups are called Llaithrlan. 
you can go to Kensington High Street tomorrow and they sell Shaitan yogurt in Kensington High Street. And I asked one of the people there about the fact that he was selling a Welsh product or a Welsh branded product. And he said, Hiscus was think that is proof that this is from Wales and it's Welsh. And they actually want that sort of identity to be a part of the branding uh, of their sort of product. So I actually don't think that is the case. Like the majority of people, not all, the majority of people say, oh, is that Welsh? Oh, do you speak Welsh? I still get that, by the way. Because do you speak Welsh to children? Yes, all the time, yes. You know, because it's my first language. A minority might uh, feel a bit strange about it, but I think they probably have views about different things in society which they also find strange, and I would not agree with. One of the other points, of course, is that while there is a significant amount of protection for the Welsh language in the public sector, there is virtually no or very little protection for the Welsh language in the private sector. And uh, I found it quite amusing in a way when recently I did a uh, podcast like this with Mary Hughes, who was the outgoing Welsh language commissioner, and uh, she was actually advocating, now that she was leaving office, extending uh, rights uh, so far as the use of um, Welsh language into the private sector, something which she hadn't been able to attain during her period of office. Mm. Why do you think there has been this resistance to extending rights into the private sector? I actually think that the resistance is greater amongst politicians than amongst the private sector itself. One of the things I've noticed, both in where I still live in North Wales and where I now live in West Wales, is that a lot of private concerns of their own free will decide to advertise themselves as being uh, a capita, sair coed, a tridanor, an electrician, bilingually or in Welsh, because they see it as good for business. And as I said about the example of the yoghurt in North Wales, a lot of other businesses see that marketing themselves through the Welsh language uh, and using Welsh language actually it makes good business sense. So I think there's more resistance from um, politi- politicians and perhaps from the bigger uh, private concerns than from small businesses who seem increasingly to be adopting uh, a bilingual or, or a Welsh approach in order to distinguish themselves as being particularly a local service. So I don't think there is a strong resistance, actually. The Welsh Government, of course, has this uh, aspiration target to have one million Welsh speakers by the year 2050. What measures do you think will be necessary to attain that target? The most obvious thing to me, I would say this because of my background, is a new Welsh Language Act, which, Welsh Education Act, uh, sorry, which which makes the Welsh language uh, a norm in every school uh, across Wales, the aim of of ensuring that every child leaves schools being able to speak Welsh. So a new Welsh Education Act uh, and uh, a strategy supporting that act, to me, would be of critical importance. The second one for me would be developing the opportunities for people to use Welsh in the workplace, which is why I feel so strongly about the apprenticeship programme. And, and I think promoting and supporting the Welsh language publicly so that those small pockets, individuals and, and areas who, who, who feel 
threatened by the Welsh language, but that their fears are allayed and that they've embraced the language in the way that they do this week in Southern Earth, where people from across Wales, from all sorts of backgrounds, they take pleasure and pride in what is basically a Welsh language uh, event, but which is open to everybody and which attracts people from all backgrounds. Of course, um, in its history, Cymdeithe Siriaeth has undertaken quite a lot of uh, non-violent activity, disruptive activity sometimes, mm. uh, to push its aims. Do you think that is still appropriate and necessary now? I would like to think it's not, and I hope it isn't. Uh, I mean, I, I, I took non-violent direct action. Um, what was the worst thing you did? I mean, I didn't do anything. Painting slogans and then saying I did it, occupying offices, but nothing worse than that. And I refusing to pay, uh, you know, license TV license. They were all things led to court appearances or to stays in the uh, jail overnight. I did nothing compared to people like Fred Francis and Harold Thomas, who spent months, if not years, in jail over a period of years. And I, I didn't enjoy it. I, I did want to, but it needed to be done at the time. I would like to think that we've gone beyond that. But we do find that we have to campaign quite hard and, and we have to take to the streets occasionally, still, unfortunately. I would like to think we don't have to do it again, but it, it depends what happens in the next five years. A change in government, a change in terms of attitudes towards the Welsh language could be very detrimental and could result in us having to go uh, onto the streets and to take non-violent direct action, but hopefully not. I know that uh, in your life... Uh, music has been very important to you. To what extent do you think that uh, Welsh language music is part of the mix, as it were, in terms of uh, seeking to attain that million target? I still come across people who say to me, um, I've learnt Welsh because uh, I saw this Welsh language group in a concert that you put on, and that made me want to learn Welsh. I still come across people like that. I still come across people today will say, um, I want to learn Welsh. I haven't started yet, but I'm going to because I like this group or that group. Uh, and I think Welsh language music is great. So I think it is a very important vehicle, partly because it's uh, a medium which people can appreciate. If you don't understand the words, you can understand the music. And it's a bridge, I think, between people who speak Welsh and who don't speak Welsh. So it is, to me, an important part of developing a greater empathy and understanding of the importance of the Welsh language. Because I think you were actually personally involved in helping some bands, weren't you? I spent probably 15 years putting on concerts of various kinds at the local and regional and national level through Cymdeithas Riaith. And uh, yes, I suppose one of my claims to fame is that I did support a Welsh language band in town that I used to teach in, in Llanrwst after I worked in Rhella, I went to work in in Llanarus, the band Colacurf, who mutated into Catatonia, who became uh, a million-selling band. So I'm very pleased that I've got that link with them, and I'm still friends uh, with them, and they still continue to make music. And I think that uh, for a period, 
you were a bit of a puncture term gamekeeper because you actually worked for the Welsh Government as an education advisor, didn't you? I did indeed. I worked. I worked. Um, I, I was a director of the Basic Skills Agency in Wales for a period of time, and then we were taken into Welsh Government. And for the last six years of my working life, I was a civil servant, which was very helpful for me in understanding how things work within the political establishment of Wales. I hope I've now contributed. That has helped me contribute to the Welsh language uh, campaigns that we're working on currently. And I do think that um, uh, one thing that it has taught me is that we really have to develop a Welsh language civil and a Welsh Wales civil service which uh, fully empathises with the situation in Wales. That's one of the things that we will need to do. I think the politicians are two steps ahead of the civil service in Wales at the moment in that I think we've got a lot of support amongst politicians across the political spectrum for our campaigns, but I think there is some reluctance and lack of understanding amongst many officials who work in the civil service. Is this because civil servants have a natural tendency to be uh, conservative with a small c? I think that's the case. I think also the civil service is a British establishment. It still is. There might be civil service in Wales, but it's part of a British establishment, and the British establishment and civil service have not fully understood diversity in the context of the Welsh language and the Scottish language and the Irish language. And it is something we will need to tackle, I think, in the next five years. Tony Scavoni, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.